listening to the Baby Your Baby podcast with me, Jade Elliott, where we talk all things pregnancy, children, and parenting. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV2 news podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health. You're listening to the Baby Your Baby podcast with myself, Jade Elliott. And today I am joined by Dr. Andrew Pavia with the University of Utah Health and Primary Children's Hospital. Dr. Pavia, you're also the chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Disease at the University of Utah and also the director of the Hospital of Epidemiology program at Primary Children's as well. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. So we are going to talk today about COVID-19, the coronavirus, and specifically when it, when it relates to children, um, expectant mothers, nursing mothers, and um, kind of all the questions that surround um, the, the correlation between, between the two. Um, we know every day there are more cases of COVID-19 uh, reported, not just here in the state, which we've seen now a few more, um, but globally, there are over 100,000 cases worldwide. Um, there are about three dozen states now in the U.S. that have coronavirus in them as well. Um, People, of course, have a lot of questions when it comes to um, coronavirus and children. We've been talking a lot about it when it comes to um, how it affects adults and specifically older adults as well, um, some with underlying health issues. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of focus so far when it comes to COVID-19 in children. Um, and, of course, we're learning more about it every day. Um, so kind of... Let's just start out with, with the question of, um, is COVID-19 dangerous in children? The good news is that it doesn't appear to be. As the epidemic was unfolding in January, we were really surprised to see very few cases coming out of China that appeared to involve children. Um, we now have pretty good data from um, over 72,000 ch- uh, patients in China. Only about 2% of those diagnosed with the disease COVID-19 due to the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 were in children. And out of 72,000 people in China, there was a single death in a teenager and none in kids under nine. Now, you have to wonder at first, could that just be China? There aren't that many children because of the one-child policy. Mm -hmm. But we're now seeing those kinds of information uh, replicated in South Korea, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, and now in the United States as it's starting to spread. So we're not seeing kids being hospitalized or kids with severe disease. So talking about, you know, children being infected, um, is there a difference in underlying symptoms of, uh, you know, are we seeing children being infected with COVID-19, but they're not showing as many symptoms as maybe some of the older adults that are affected by it? So we now have a couple of studies, not as much as we'd like, that have gone into families where there's case and traced now hundreds of contacts, and it does look like kids are just as likely to be infected as adults, but they're much more likely to have either no symptoms or very mild cold-like symptoms, runny nose, a little bit of cough. Um, The younger children may even be less likely to have fevers, and they don't progress to the severe lung disease that we see in older adults and people with underlying conditions. So if if a child is infected uh, with the virus, uh, but maybe they're not showing as many symptoms or or are as sick as some of the older adults that we're seeing uh, the coronavirus in. Can they still spread it just as easily as we're seeing it spread um, in other ages? 
That's a really critical question. We know that kids are shedding it, and we know that they're infecting some family members. But with some other diseases like influenza, Mm -hmm. kids are actually really important. They are probably driving the spread in the community. Um, But we don't know if they're quite that important. But kids with mild infection still can infect people around them, and that could include their grandparents or their friends who are on chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to consider protecting kids from infection is not so much to keep them safe as to keep the vulnerable people that they know safe. Is it safe to say that a child could be infected with it and we might not see the symptoms um, and it might not know that that could be spreading throughout a family or spreading to a grandparent or uh, someone else that they come into contact with? Well, we know that some kids can become infected and shed virus without becoming clinically sick. Mm We don't know for certain whether those kids actually effectively transmit. As a rule, what makes you dangerous is the spray that comes out of your mouth when you cough and sneeze and the snot, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a highly medical term, the snot that comes out of your nose when you're sick. Which just about every kid has. (laughs) Yeah, so kids without symptoms, without a cough or runny nose or sneezing probably aren't very good at transmitting the virus, but we don't have as much data to say that for certain as we would like. So what are some of the symptoms um, that we might see in a child or even in an infant when it comes to COVID-19? So I'll talk first about children because we have better data there. Mm -hmm. So children with COVID-19 look a lot like adults. They get cough. Um, Many get fever, but not all. Uh, They can get Shorter breath, if they're a little bit more severe, it uh, appears that sometimes it can trigger asthma. uh, And rarely there's diarrhea, maybe 5%. What is a little bit different about kids is that um, there is a little bit more report of runny nose in children. And runny nose is fairly uncommon in adults with COVID-19. Now, of course, you might ask the question, as you suggested, kids often have runny noses. So <laughs> was do. it caused by that virus uh-huh. or was it just their runny nose? We don't have that answer yet. Right. So if I have a four-year-old who, you know, is in a, a, a preschool setting, um, and of course we know the spread of virus and germs and all the things happen all the time. Um, and so, and I know that's the case for a lot of parents with younger kids. They see the cough the runny nose, maybe a mild fever. At at what point should a parent go, okay, I need to have my child tested for COVID-19? So there's really no utility in having your kid uh, tested if they have mild illness for their sake. Mm -hmm. There's no treatment that we have. There's no treatment that we recommended. So managing your child is just a question of keeping them home, uh, preventing transmission. Where it gets a little more complicated is if they might act as um, a more risky spreader mm-hmm. in other people in the family. So there may be circumstances in which children should be tested. For example, if they're living in a three-generational household, sure. um, you know that sort of thing might be helpful. But in general, kids can be cared for at home like they would with any other cold or viral illness. If you have doubts about their symptoms and about whether or not you know this fever is too high or the breathing rate is too high, talk to your pediatrician, or use another resource to decide if they should be seen. The last thing you want to do in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic is to spend a lot of time in an emergency department mm-hmm. or an Instacare. Um, and so if you don't have to go, please don't. And 
you know, with that, we're also seeing um, a lot of people who may have come in contact with COVID-19 or come in contact with someone else who's come in contact with it. They're putting themselves already kind of into that self-isolation phase or that self-quarantine phase. Um, we're also seeing that uh, as people are getting tested and they're being put into quarantine, is that something that children would fall into that realm as well if if they have tested positive? Do we look at that kind of 14-day period like we have been, or is it different for them? So at this point, um, where we are in the epidemic, if you have a known exposure, whether you're a child or adult, you might get sick sometime in the next 14 days. So an exposure to somebody with known disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where public health is recommending that you self-quarantine. And quarantine is for people who are well who've been exposed. Mm-hmm. We use the word isolation for people who are sick, staying out of the community and, and infecting people. Um, now, people probably wonder, well, if I've been exposed, can I get tested and figure it out? And the problem there is that during the incubation period, if you're not sick, you there is no virus being shed, and the test isn't going to tell you anything about whether you're going to get sick in four, seven, or ten days. Mm-hmm. The time the test is useful is when you have symptoms. Now, as the disease becomes more and more widespread, we will probably uh, move away from having quarantine for everyone who's exposed and focus on people who are sick. Sure. And so when we're talking about um, our children maybe showing symptoms, and you know, you had mentioned the last place really to, to put them at that point is to take them to an emergency room, an urgent care facility. Um, Utah Department of Health has a great information line that people can call and, and get some questions answered, but Intermountain also has their uh, Connect Care. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about those services that can be utilized as opposed to going into a facility. Yeah, so the State Health Department line can provide you with general information, such as questions about when should I be seen, should I be tested, um, how do I keep my family safe if somebody in the household has the disease. Connect Care can provide a virtual visit on you know the equivalent of FaceTime mm-hmm. uh, so that you can be assessed without going in, um, and they will see kids as well as adults. Now, many pediatricians are happy to talk to you over the phone in this setting and you know ask the key questions that they might want to know. Is your child keeping fluids down? Mm-hmm. Are they, are they, do they have wet diapers? Are they peeing well? Uh, are they short of breath? Are their lips blue? Things that would give you an idea of whether they really need to be seen. And you talked about, um, of course, keeping your family protected as well. Um, if if your child does come down with the symptoms or you know is tested positive for COVID nineteen, how do you protect the rest of your family if you're you know, also caring for your young child at home. So there's some very good resources that you can read about because you're not going to remember everything we talk about on this <laughs> podcast. Oh, um, yes, they will, doctor. Uh, and the CDC has some nice guidelines, as does the Utah Department of Health. But the idea is that the same things that help protect you in the community are ever more important when you're at home. Mm-hmm. So hand washing frequently, regardless of whether you've been in contact and after contact, um, the, if the sick person is of an age where it's appropriate and you can do that, they should be in a separate bedroom and you should limit uh, trips inside and outside. This is where technology can help us. You sure. know, 
your kid probably is happy looking at the screen anyway, and you can FaceTime as much as you want during the day and not go in and out of the room. Now, we think that there are some situations where in the house you want to think about using a mask, and that's if the person who is in isolation is coughing and, and fairly ill, if you're going to be in very close contact for more than a few minutes, um, a mask may be reasonable, and certainly if you're cleaning up vomit mm -hmm. or changing diapers or um, other things where you're cleaning up a whole variety of soiled tissues where um, you may want to think about that. But in general, you don't, masks aren't protective for well people. And I wanted to ask you about masks and, and, and what people should know about them because we do see a lot of people walking around wearing them. Um, is, are, are they just taking an extra precaution by doing that? Is it, is it serving a purpose for them to do that? Or um, is it just making them feel better knowing so, that they have one on? So I think, not to pick on the media, but I think you've done a disservice by showing all these pictures of people in Korea and Japan wearing masks um, because it gives the idea that that is protecting them. And in uh, many Asian countries, wearing a mask in winter is being done because it's felt to be polite. If I am coughing, the mask protects you from my cough. Mm -hmm. It's not because people think that wearing a mask all day long protects them. And but I think that's become kind of the trend <clears throat> as people think that that mask is protecting them as yeah. opposed to and the, the opposite. Yeah, the problem with the way you know, we would wear masks in the street as ordinary citizens going around our business is they become soiled, they become wet. We touch the mask and the mask is now just as dirty on the outside of the mask mm -hmm. as uh, anything else we touch. There have been studies that have compared mask use uh, to no mask use for, say, college students in the dorm. And what they found with those studies is that if you put in a strong program of hand hygiene in the dorm, you could reduce the influenza rate compared to normal college student behavior. If you added masks to hand cleaning, it didn't add any real benefit. Mm -hmm. So there is a use for masks, and that is that when someone is sick, a mask traps a lot of the virus that comes out when you cough or sneeze. And so when you come to the doctor's office or to the hospital here, if you're coughing or sneezing, we'll put a mask on you. If you have a sick person at home who's coughing or sneezing, putting a mask on the sick person is actually a very good idea. Just remember that they should change it. The mask is soiled and chock full of virus, um, but it doesn't really do much good in the household except for those specific uh, things we talked about. Sure. And walking the streets of Salt Lake, a mask is of no help. <laughs> the other thing to think about with masks is we're having really dire shortages of protective equipment. Right. And if everyone wants to wear a mask all the time, then we can run out of them in the hospital and in the clinics. And, um, you know, in that setting where you have a healthcare worker who is examining the throat of a sick person, intubating them, et cetera, the mask actually pay, plays a much bigger role. Yeah. And of course, the healthcare worker could have symptom, it could have a virus and not know it, so the mask also protects our patients from us. Yeah, absolutely. That's good advice. Um, so we've been talking about, of course, uh, children, uh, the symptoms, how they could be infected, um, what that kind of looks like with them. What about, though, um, for pregnant women? Are they at any sort of higher risk when it comes to COVID-19? So we're still learning a lot about that. Um, we were very worried at the outset because 
for influenza, mm -hmm. pregnant women uh, uh, are more likely to get very sick, particularly when they're in the third trimester in the last three months. Um, and during the 2009 pandemic, we saw that one group that ended up getting very sick were pregnant women. Uh, we don't have as much data as we would like, but so far, uh, information from you know, uh, four countries that have seen fairly widespread disease, we're not seeing a signal that it's much worse for pregnant women than it is for other women of the same age and the mm -hmm. same health. Now, once we've said that, we're still kind of concerned because as you get to the very end of pregnancy, your lungs are compressed by the baby and the uterus pushing up on the lungs, and your immune system starts to turn itself off to prevent rejecting the baby. And so until we know more, we still think there may be some increased risk in the very late stage of pregnancy, but um, we just haven't seen that signal. Mm -hmm. and, and what about transmission? If a, if a pregnant mom is, um, is confirmed, tested positive for COVID-19, um, can she transmit that to a baby in uterus? So that we have pretty good data on. There have been several small studies. Each one is, you know, kind of in the range of uh, nine to a dozen women, and they've shown no transmission in the uterus. Uh, we have seen that the virus can be transmitted to young infants after they're born, and that makes sense. Of course, who is closer to their mother's face right. than a newborn? And, right. um, most of the infants who've been infected that way have done quite well. They've had mild to moderate illness, but have done well. But it's clearly a group we'd like to protect, and we have protocols in place if a woman is delivering and has COVID-19 uh, to try and reduce the risk of the baby getting infected right away. It, can it be transmitted through delivery? Uh, we don't believe that it can be transmitted, you know, through passage through the mm -hmm. birth, birth canal, through the placenta, but of course from coughing, sneezing, and droplets from the mom or the mom's hands contaminated with her sure. respiratory secretions. Sure. And then what about breastfeeding? If the mom has been tested positive for COVID-19, um, should there be a concern when it comes to breastfeeding? Should they not breastfeed? What's that look like? So I'm a pediatrician, so anything that preserves breastfeeding, I'm yeah. going to advocate for. Right. So here's what we know. Um, the two other viruses that are closely related to the current coronavirus, SARS and MERS, mm -hmm have not been found in breast milk and never been transmitted through breastfeeding. There have been quite a few studies so far of breast milk. Um, they're not huge, they're not perfect, but they haven't found the virus in breast milk. So, uh, and other coronaviruses, the ones that cause common colds, are not transmitted in breast milk. So we think that transmission through breast milk itself is very, very unlikely. Breastfeeding, of course, puts you face to face. Right. And so, that's the issue. So the recommended approach, the first choice for a woman who is acutely ill with COVID-19, who has just delivered a baby and wants to breastfeed, is to start pumping mm -hmm. and give that breast milk to the baby, uh, you know, through another family member or a nurse. And then once the uh, woman's symptoms have resolved to start breastfeeding. Now, having said that, um, you know, it, it's, we don't know enough to say that it's really an awful idea mm -hmm. to start breastfeeding right away, you know, because the benefits of that early breastfeeding are certainly significant. Right. Um, but that would be our second choice. Okay. And resources for people, we know that there's a lot out there. Any 
specific place you recommend people to go if they have um, any other questions or if they want to revisit maybe something that we've talked about? So we have some of this information on the Primary Children's website, mm -hmm. on Intermountain Healthcare's blog, but you want to look for the Primary Children's information. Mm -hmm. um, CDC at cdc.gov slash coronavirus has lots of good information for families, and the Utah Department of Health has it as well. Now, there's a lot of terrible information out there. Oh, I always tell people, anyone who <coughs> listens to our podcast on a regular basis knows, I always tell people, don't just go Googling things. <laughs> go somewhere safe. Yeah. Dr. Google commits malpractice daily. All the time. <laughs> um, and Twitter, you know, we, in the medical world, we found that Twitter is a great way to share information quickly mm -hmm. and to share research. But when you're on Twitter, you also see the kind Everything of dangerous else. stuff that's on there. Yeah. Um, and what I will say, too, I mean, over the course of, um, you know, the last little bit of, uh, you know, more developments coming out every day um, about the coronavirus and COVID-19, um, you know, I will say that the CDC, World Health Organization, um, they have been doing an incredible job uh, on Twitter and, and getting information out on um you know, a minute-by-minute minute basis at some points. Yeah. And, and I also want to give a shout-out to a couple of science journalists who have done a really outstanding job. And you, you kind of want to stick with the people who you know yeah. are really responsible. So Helen Branswell, um, who writes for Stat and posts stuff on Twitter, is really a very good source and stuff that's down-to-earth. Um, Lena Sun at the Washington Post is terrific. Some of the NPR reporters mm -hmm. have done a really thoughtful job. So there, there is good information in yes. the news, but you just don't know which piece to trust. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and, um, doctor, for answering our questions when it comes to coronavirus, how um, that can impact children, mothers. Um, you know, we know that there are still a lot of questions out there and you know we will continue to find answers for them i know so thank you so much for your time we really appreciate yeah. it thank you and um everyone should realize that we are learning as we go yeah and um you know we will get the best information we have out if things change yeah i appreciate that thank you so much and that concludes this week's episode of the baby your baby podcast all right thank you Joining me, Jade Elliott, and our guest for this week's Baby Your Baby podcast. If you have a topic that you'd like our Baby Your Baby experts to discuss, leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV2 news podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health.